everyone. Welcome to another episode of Hawkin Talking Force. We're here today in the lab with a very special guest. Ryan Carroll's joining us. And again, his story is incredible. His journey uh, has been through a lot of different angles of our field and our profession. And we're excited to share that uh, story with you today. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Thomas. Honor to be on. Awesome. So for maybe some of the people that don't know your history or your background, could you give us just a quick little you know, overview of some of the things that you've done? Yeah, for sure. So currently I'm the director of elite tactical sport at Bridge Athletic. Um, I've been here for about three years, primarily working um, as an educator in the business development side, trying to trying to work with our military customers um, in elite sport. And then prior to that, kind of starting from the beginning, I guess. Um, so I did my undergrad at Marquette University. I initially wanted to be a physical therapist. Um, but, you know, as soon as I started seeing or understanding that physical th- therapist at that time worked with old people, it was like, Hey, this is not, <laughs> I don't want to be with sitting in a lab with a bunch of old people doing rehab, you know, helping them get out of chairs. So I got out of that, you know, grew up playing sports, grew up lifting weights, wanted to become like kind of stay around sport and, um, really just got, involved in strength and conditioning, took a couple of classes, really enjoyed that side of it. Um, did my internship at DePaul University um, in Chicago with uh, a man named Tim Lang, who was uh, kind of a Vern Gambetta disciple, uh, worked with the White Sox, the Texas Rangers, um, kind of an old school guy and, um, you know, helped get me into baseball. So um, I actually went to University of Tennessee first for my master's worked with football, baseball, swimming, um, and actually in between semesters went and did um, rookie ball with the the Colorado Rockies, came back, finished my degree, moved on to the White Sox where I was with the White Sox for two and a half years, I think, Um, came back, worked in the collegiate setting at Loyola University, so I was the head strength and conditioning coach there for about five went back to the White Sox, trying to make it again, you know, in, in baseball. Um, and then kind of found my calling going into the tactical space, um, moved down to North Carolina in about 2012, um, worked with a, an Air Force special operations group until about 2018, and then transitioned over to Bridge to try to get my um, my skill set up on the, on the data technology side of things. And I've been there ever since. So hopefully everyone can understand why uh, we wanted to have you on today because that's an incredible journey. Um, typically we find people that get stuck in, I'm the baseball guy, I'm the football guy. And, and you've kind of been at every level up and down uh, as well as it seems like left and right from, you know, uh, university setting to um, now call it private sector and data. What are some of the things that you kind of saw along the way that either influenced you currently or things that, you know, maybe we're an aha moment that you didn't enjoy going through, um, but certainly took as a learning lesson because every one of those levels you just talked about are completely different. Yeah, for sure. And I think the one thing that has really been the the aha moment or not aha moment, but the take home point for me that I, I love to chat with other coaches about is it, there's no linear process in this field. You know, I mean, yeah, there is for a select few, but for a lot of us, um, you know, you bounce around, you go to one area, you come back, you move up, you move down, you move left, you move right. So I think that's important for young coaches to understand that, you know, you may start out in, you know, in pro baseball and finish in pro hockey and that's okay. You know, like there's no one right way to be successful in this field. Um, and, and that's something that's been very evident to me throughout all those travels. I think you can, you know, like you said, you can pick and choose, pluses and minuses to every stop and and everywhere you go. And the big thing to me, I think almost kind of coming up during this transition from let's call it old school to, to kind of new school. And and that when I first started in strength and conditioning in 2004, 2005, 2003, like technology was not that there was no technology, you know, it was, it was just lifting weights, paper sheets, all that kind of stuff. There was no GPS. There was none of that. Um, so to come from that and then have experiences like being at, um, being at Loyola, where I was the only coach for 250 athletes and just getting destroyed, you know, like, I mean, I'll be honest, by the time I left, I was just so fried 
as a coach, you know, like you could have given me any kind of feedback you wanted. I'd been like, yeah, that's probably true. You know, positive and negative, you know, like you can only do so much with that many athletes, you know? And, and so, you know, it was a big thing that I learned there was kind of quality over quantity and, and really um, understanding what you can give, what you're able to give, you know, putting up boundaries, trusting that you putting up boundaries is going to gain the respect of the coaching staff. Um, Cause at the time I was young and I was like, well, if I say no, then, you know, maybe I'm going to be out of a job soon. But you know, the older me is like, man, you should have been harder on, no, I'm not going to work for free during the summer. Um, you know, because back then I don't know how it is now, but at a school like Loyola, it was a 10 month contract, but the basketball team's not leaving in June and July. So what are you going to do? Um, you know, there's other lessons and, and I want to, I don't want to pull out anyone specifically, but I found I learned just as much in terms of not what I didn't want to be. And, and that to me is more along the lines of like, how do you treat interns? How do you treat folks that are coming in to help and learn? Like I'm very much against bringing in somebody to clean the weight room or to collect the sheets or to fill the Gatorade, you know, whatever it is. Like if I'm bringing someone in, like I'm paying them. Like if I can't pay someone a livable wage, then I'm not bringing in an intern because I don't think it's, it's not a valuable experience for them. It's not a valuable experience for me. And, and I just remember doing that stuff that had nothing to do with strength and conditioning. And I just think it's kind of BS to be like, oh, you got to earn your place here. No, you're here to learn and grow. And, and I'm here to make you understand the, the stresses and strains of this this career field and help you learn and help guide you to get a great job and you sweeping and mopping floors isn't like that's not doing it um you bring up a great point on that and i know that you know for us you know and i'm sure throughout your time as well you kind of go through those stages and one of the things we actually we did institute at yale was a pretty comprehensive internship program and i just remember people asking saying well how are you going to get people? yale doesn't have exercise science and I said, well, we have a brand, we have a way we do things. And again, at that level and at that time, yeah, you might sweep the floor, but I'm also going to spend 40 minutes with you teaching you how to program. And then I'm also going to help you with your resume and we're going to get you headshots and we're going to do that. And so I think to your point about the days of just, you're going to come in and do all the crappy jobs. And, you know, at the end of a whole semester, you know, you'll be one step closer to being worth my time, really trying to integrate education, mentorship, and training, because that is something too in the field. If we don't give these kids opportunities to kind of learn in a guided environment and actually learn, like you're here and we have to do lots of things. Um, I don't think as an industry we're, we're helping our, our case. So I, I agree with you on the idea that, you know, the days of just doing the medial tasks are, you know, useless or just, you know, yeah. go, go ahead and do it. So it, it's all got to be integrated. Yeah. Or the, you know, this is how I did it. You know, I remember hearing stories about, oh, I slept in the weight room where I, you know, slept here or whatever. And it's like, so what? Doesn't mean people need to do it. That doesn't mean that's the right answer. And I know, you know, the one approach that I took at Loyola, whether it's right or wrong is, you know, I had interns that were, you know, they're finishing up their undergrad and it was like, all right, you got a team and you got a team, you know, how else are you going to learn? I mean, I'll help you with the programming but you're going to develop your coaching style. You're going to go out there and fail. You're going to go out there and succeed. You're going to come back and ask questions. Like that's the way that someone learns. They don't learn by standing over on the side and cleaning up or putting up weights or things like that. It just, to me, it doesn't make sense to have people do that. How did you keep that growth mindset? Because as you alluded to, they need to be able to feel that they can get into an environment where they can fail. And it's not the end of the world. We'd always talk about as an intern, you're not put in a position where things can be catastrophic. It's close supervision, but you also have that person watching over your shoulder, but isn't it incredible how much they grow in a month, in six months, yeah. it's like a different person. Yeah. For sure. And, and I think there's just a, it's kind of a gut feel, you know, as a coach, like you may, Hey, I'm, I'm taking, let's just say I'm taking women's soccer or I'm going to give them women's soccer. Well, number one, I'm going to pick a team that I have a great relationship with that coach. And he trusts, he trusts what I'm doing. He trusts me. He trusts the strength and conditioning stuff. And so I'm going to start, Hey, you're going to watch me for like the first week. And I'm going to show you, and I'm going to talk you through some of the things I do. 
you're going to watch me lead warm up. You know, you're going to watch me lead them through a session. And then we're going to kind of start handing the reins over a little bit. So it may not be, you know, from zero to a hundred, but Hey, next week, you're going to start leading warm up. Hey, next week you're in charge of this session. Like I'm going to be over in the corner. I'm going to be keeping an eye on you, but kids got questions. I'm sending them to you and just start gradually introducing them over the course of a couple of weeks to where they're the person that those students know, Hey, I, I talked to Joe, if, if, you know, whatever. Um, and we'll do reviews at the end of the week. Hey, what went well? What went bad? What do you have questions on? You know, let me see what the programming looks like. So we're not going too far off track. But yeah, I mean, the goal I've always thought is I want that person to turn around and get a great job out of this. I want them to get excited about strength and conditioning and not think, all right, I'm going to be, I'm going to be sweeping floors or whatever it is for the next couple of years until someone decides arbitrarily that I've done my time and I can now be a coach. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a kind of just a gut feeling, but yeah, I agree. It's, you've got to, you've got to trust or have the idea that I'm here to make you better. And, you know, there's no better way to do it than getting in and, and, and doing it. So. Yeah, I think that fellowship component is basically what you described of that. You're going out there, you're autonomous, it's guided, guided autonomy. Um, but yeah. then that reflection, and I can't tell you the number of times things were pretty binary of, you know, I had a terrible week, I screwed this up, or you know what, I really crushed it. When really your profession throughout the week is kind of a mosaic. There's some things you did well, there's some things that went as planned. There's surely a bunch of sudden changes that were thrown your way where you yeah. thought you were going home at three, you didn't, the staff had to stay or this, that. And then you also, um, you know, can take that time to reflect of as a leader, did I also bring my teammates up? And so you spend yeah. coaching the, the coaches as much as you do the athletes. And I think, again, there's that normal growth development. Everyone kind of goes at their own speed, but certainly making sure that you're planning that into your development uh, pipeline of anybody that you work with. Yeah. And I think it's also important on some levels to give younger coaches an idea of what they're really getting into. Because, you know, I, I think a lot of coaches like me, I went in thinking, all right, I'm just going to go work for a pro sports team. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be with all these pro athletes. Like no one thinks about the time and how you're there. You know, let's say in baseball, you're there at one o'clock for a seven o'clock game and you're not leaving until midnight. You're doing that 150 to 160 days out of the year. So, you know, what better way than to give them the opportunity to see like, hey, this is what you're getting into. You know, this is, you know, you may make 30K the first couple of years. You may make 50K in five years, like, do you want to do this? Because I'm not going to lie. Like there's parts of me that are like, I don't know if I'd tell somebody right now to go into strength and conditioning. I might tell them to go into physical therapy or something like that, where you've got, you can, you can get your CSCS and you can be a strength coach, but you've got another skill set to fall back on because it's very difficult to do it the other way around. Um, but I think it's important as part of that kind of internship experience that they know exactly what they're getting into and there's nothing sugarcoated about it so that, you know, they're, they're not disappointed going forward. No doubt. I mean, we would talk about 10 hour coaches, 40 hour coaches and 80 hour week coaches. And then you'd ask them, you'd say, how much do you love strength and conditioning? I love it for like the first 10 hours. And then it's a chafe. And it's like, well, you need to know that, you know, yeah. and then the next part was, are you okay with living below the poverty line? You know, yeah. they'll probably call it if you're good, 25. And then it's still hourly. I don't know what it breaks out to for, you know, assistant yeah. directors or whatever, but 25 to 30, you're still going to be making less than the average Walmart employee. Are you okay with that? And they kind of look at you and there's this discussion, but I have my degree and I have my master's and I have all these things. But, you know, to your point, especially now with technology, the military now getting into strength and conditioning, this is not the same field that you and I started with you know, a few years back when it was predominantly football, maybe basketball, and then you'd have a couple, depending on the school, other marquee teams, but as a field, it's really grown and expanded and it's got to, you know, change and evolve. Now you mentioned a couple other things there. I just want to touch on as well. How did you stay humble and stay hungry throughout your time? Because the hours can make you less hungry. The humble part, you know, when people are coming at you, you know, very, very, 
uh, often coaches will get defensive. So how did you let that stuff roll off your back, but then also listen to some of the constructive criticism to help make you as a better coach? Yeah, well, I think if I had to be honest, I've gotten better at letting stuff roll off my back as I've gotten older. Um, one of my regrets at Loyola, I mean, I was 20, 23, 24 when I started that job. So I wasn't much older than the kids. And, you know, you're like, hey, all right, I'm, I'm here. This is a D1 job. Like, I'm the head guy. Like, I'm the guy. And there's that, I forget the name of the, the curve. It's the Dunning-Kruger or something like that, where it's like, you know, you're expert to idiot to, to expert. And, man, I thought I knew. I thought I knew it all. I thought I had it covered. I was good. Um, I didn't read as much as I should have. You know, social media wasn't a big thing. So it was a little bit, took more effort to connect with people. And that's one of the biggest lessons I, I took and in, in kind of being humble is like, man, you are never, like you're never as smart as you think you are and you never have it all down. But I still battle. And I think we all do. It's a little bit of a confidence ego issue. Like, I don't want to be told that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but at the same time, you got to realize like there's people out there that really, they know more about other stuff than you do. And I think it's a combination of putting yourself out there, you know, like I am now, like I'm putting my ideas, my thoughts out there. Hopefully people respond. I'm always a big proponent of like, I'm not sitting here saying I have the answers. I'm trying to start a discussion. So, you know, obviously you're going to have questions for me. I hope other people that are listening will have questions and reach out. And we can have good conversation out of it. Um, but otherwise, I think what's really cool about this time and kind of history and the, the, the field is like I can realize that, you know, um, so and so is really great at conditioning stuff like Kierwin and Flat. I, I can try to get in touch with him and I can ask him to, hey, here's what I think about this. What do you think about it? Or I can go to, you know, someone else and I can easily reach out to people that are trusted within the field um, and find them and, and ask questions and not try to stand up here and say, yeah, ask me whatever you want about conditioning. I know it all. I've been around for 20 years. So the humbleness and the maturity comes from number one, being humbled as a coach and, and understanding like, Hey, I, I really could have done a better job with these athletes, you know, at this one particular place, if I would have just been a little bit more, understanding of where I was at in my career. And then now understanding, yeah, I've got some experience, but there are plenty of other people that have had other experiences and seen things differently that I can tap into. And I don't have to approach it with the idea of, all right, here's where I'm dug in. Where are you dug in? Okay. You're wrong. I mean, it's, it's just so nice to call somebody and say, Hey, I don't really understand, you know, let's say DSI. I don't really understand DSI. I know you do a lot of work with that. I've seen your name on some research papers. Help explain it to me. Because then you don't come off as a jerk. You know, you kind of humble yourself a little bit at the beginning. And people are more receptive. You know, everyone wants to, they want to be kind of perceived as the expert, I guess, a little bit initially. And that helps create that dialogue of, hey, I don't understand this. You look like you do. What do you think? You take that information, you go home you dig through it, maybe you bounce it off of similar people, and then you start to kind of formulate your own opinion on topics. But that's kind of kind of how I've taken the approach. And, you know, I hope that it comes off as humble. I definitely don't feel like I'm an arrogant person, but it's been a lifetime of experience to get to that point. Yeah. I mean, you bring up so many good points on that. And it, to me, it's just, it's fascinating. <clears throat> and I think it's particularly to strength and conditioning as well you have to be in your silo. You have to be a master in any kind of sign of weakness. And maybe that's a carryover from sport coaches or just kind of that kind of, I don't know what that, uh, the technical term of it, like just macho man, uh, perspective yeah. when, you know, flip, let's, let's shift gears, go into the tech sector. You're as good as your team, you know, shift gears again, yeah. go to the military. It's the team is the team is the team is the unit. I think back to Steve jobs when he said, you know, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, we got problems. You know, yeah. and I would, I would pride myself at Yale of being like, I am definitely the biggest idiot. I, I'm just a glad that I'm the glue and I can bring people together and what can my team and what can the unit do to achieve success um, for it? And, and trying to, as you pointed out the ego and the confidence and then being humble, it is not a static state. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you the number of times where someone walk in, you, you, you have all those things in your head that you want to say, 
Yeah. And you're like, Roger that coach. I'm, I'm with you, but you know what, we're going to do what you say. And you know, the younger version of me would want to tell them, um, but learning how to, to do that. I think having grace in the way that you lead, um, is certainly challenging over time. Um, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that I'm learning right now is I'm really trying to kind of understand more about leadership. And to me, then this is just my personal kind of take on it is I agree with you. Like I want to be the guy. And I think that being at bridge has really helped with that. I want to be the guy that I, like you said, I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I can easily get in touch with the guy who is on that particular topic. And if someone is like, Hey, Ryan, you're in charge of X, Y, Z. I need you to do this. And I'm like, Ooh, I don't really know too much about that. I got somebody that I can call that can help get me the information so that I can continue to lead the team in the right way. I don't have to sit here and blindly say, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. We're going to do X, Y, Z, and let's go. Um, so I think it is, it, it's kind of about being that, that center figure of the team that, that guides the relationships and makes sure that the right person is helping to drive the conversation. And that shifts, you know, from minute to minute, day to day, topic to topic. You know, first day we may be talking about changing our conditioning approach for the coming off season. Well, maybe I got somebody on staff that's that's really deep in the weeds on conditioning. And so I'm not going to stand here and say, yep, we're going to change from this approach to this approach. It's, hey, let me talk to my team. Guys, what do we think about this? You know, and then, all right, here's the decision. So you're kind of that filter point for the coaches and your staff. And so that's kind of something that's been really interesting to me is just learning how people, whether it's strength coaches, military, business, how these people kind of see that and, and utilize those different skill sets in a leadership position. Yeah. And I think spe specifically, as you talked about, you know, you going over to bridge kind of opened your eyes. I'm sure there's a lot of data that you have access to now that you couldn't even think about having 10, yeah. 15, 20 years ago, you're going to have to have a team. I mean, you think about, yeah. you go to the hospital, you go to the emergency room, you don't just have one doctor, you have one person that runs point, but then you got your specialist. And by the way, that cardiologist knows nothing about orthopedics yeah. and the ortho yeah. knows nothing about maybe, you know, endo. And so just, I think that's, again, if we look at where our, our industry's headed, you have to be able to pull those teams together, but you know, on the flip side, how do you, as the point person, not get overwhelmed with data? I don't, I don't know what your strategies have been on that or what your thought process is, but it seems like right now there's more data than ever. And I don't necessarily know if that's a great thing for someone who's not prepared. Yeah. And, and that kind of, um, I know we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but that's really where I, I from my version or, or my viewpoint, you know, when we started, there wasn't a lot of tech out there. Then maybe five, 10 years ago, there's this wave. And I remember things like, like using Zephyr at, at the military unit and people starting to use GPS and, um, you know, not even the programming software. Like to me, that came a little bit later, but now all of a sudden I'm looking at, um, you know, Zephyr can track, I forget how many data points it can collect, but we're utilizing that for a selection event that's lasting over 48 hours. So now all of a sudden I'm pulling a puck that's got millions of data points and it's like, well, what matters? What doesn't like, what, what do I need to look at? Um, so I think we've gotten to the point now where we're trying to figure all that out and, and understanding that that's where we're at. And now you've got these systems that are coming in like Hawken and, and, you know, others that are, that are starting to kind of help make decisions off of that data. But, um, you know, I think as a, as kind of a leader, as a professional, um, I mean, there's a whole host of options and it goes from, Hey, I'm going to be a whiz at Excel to I'm going to go out and get, you know, a big fancy AMS system. And, and I'm going to have those people help me come up with the graphics and the analytics that are going to help me, you know, to show whatever picture I'm trying to show. Um, Cause I think at the end of the day, the, the goal of all this should be is how do I justify the efficacy of what me and my staff are doing? And for some folks, maybe that's even how am I saving the department, the military, whomever money. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just a matter of, um, of figuring out, let's call it like the minimal effective dose for what that needs to be. 
And I think that's another area where we get caught up and, and I've started to look deeper at is almost starting from the back and working forwards. So instead of being like, all right, I need GPS, I need a programming tool, I need force plates, I need, you know, I need a wearable. Um, start with what are the two or three things that I need that are going to show the effectiveness of my program so that I stick around, my staff sticks around, they give us more money, all that stuff. And start with that. And if it's, hey, I need to be able to track, you know, um, jump height and I need to be able to track, um, you know, readiness. Okay, well, I'm going to start there. I'm not going to start at, hey, my buddy says that this, this device is cool. And my other buddy says this device is cool. And this is what I see this guy on social media using. So let me go buy all those things and then come back and be like, um, what matters? Like figure out what matters first work back and pick your tech based off of that, match that up with what are my resources for collecting that data? Because again, if I'm pulling GPS and wearables and force plates, but I've got to input all that into an Excel doc, maybe that's too much, you know, from a time standpoint versus if I've got, you know, let's, I don't want to, I don't want to single anybody out, but if I've got an AMS, maybe all that stuff APIs and it's not a big deal and it takes me 30 seconds to pull up a report. So let's go. So I think all those things kind of play a factor. I mean, go back to basic principles. One-on-one is what's your analysis. What's the SWOT analysis. What are we good at? What do we stink at? And right. I can't tell you, I just, this earlier this week, somebody asked me, said, I'm at a new school division three, you know, I got whatever seven teams and, you know, I want to know what tech and this and that. And I was like, you know, do they, are teams winning? What's their culture? Yeah. Oh, geez, I didn't know. Uh, what's their attendance been like? Oh, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you right now, the program that's not done is never as effective as the worst program that's done consistently. So maybe right. in year one or semester one, you're focusing on building a culture. Could could you do better program? Absolutely. But, you know, Olympic lifting was what they did last time and they hate it. It might be the best thing in the world, but they hate it. So they're not going to be intentional. Yeah. Just going through the motions. And so we went from having data conversations about, advanced analytics and this, and that to maybe it's attendance in your one. And then you can go to the next, like yeah. you said, and, but well, like, what am I trying to accomplish? I think too, way too often. And then I know you mentioned you were at Tennessee. So I'm sure they were guilty of this too, is the shiny toy and how many toys we have. And they've got three. Well, we better get five. What do we do with it? I don't know. You know, so, yeah. and so what, what am I going to change based off this data? And it can't be, oh, they need a day off. They need a day off. They need a day off. And, and you've okay. mentioned with the military as well they might have to perform when they're not at their best. Like we were going to do our best to try to keep their readiness up, but you also, it's time to go. It's time to go. How, how did you see that? Or was there any difference between the college setting and, and the military side on that kind of readiness concept or were they, were they kind of the same? Um, I mean, I think there's definitely differences and the, the biggest differences I would say are, you know, you're looking at, and I, I probably use this nomenclature, you know, as an exact kind of analysis of this or example is when I talk about college athletes, I call them kids. You know, when I talk about military folks, they're adults, you know, and so it's just the whole concept around that and how, um, you know, the, the, the military population, I mean, they're adults are there to do a job, you know, working out and training is especially in the special operations side of things like conventional military, probably you're looking at different ratios, but for the most part, these people are pretty fit. They like to train, but they've got a job to do. So when we're looking at readiness and we're looking at a collegiate athlete, or we're looking at a, a, a you know, a Navy SEAL that has to go out on target tomorrow night. I mean, those are life and death situations sometimes. So they just got to go and they might have reds across the board. And your job is to educate them and educate their leadership that this guy can go like, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not the, the gatekeeper, but here's what you're risking. Here's the ROI, you know, because we're looking for the best bang for our buck. So if I've got, you know, a couple of guys that are green and one guy that's red, well, what's that guy that's red? What's his job going to be? Is he standing there, you know, I don't know, guarding a door and, you know, zones off because he's, he's tired and 
you know, on an adrenaline, you know, kind of come down and all that stuff or, you know, or what, how's that going to affect the mission? And just raising those questions, let them answer it. That's not my place to answer, but just say, Hey, this is, this is what the information I'm giving you. This is going to be the effect potentially. Whereas if I'm looking at a college kid, um, I think there's more hesitancy from, from leadership or upper level coaches and stuff to, like you said, pull back the reins. Like, Hey, I see a couple of reds pulling back. Um, where I, you know, I, I think it, it kind of comes down to the same thing. It's like this kid could play, but here's what we're risking is the risk worth, worth the reward. You know, is it, is this a conference game and this person's a really key component? All right, cool. They're going to go. How does that set us up for next game or down the road when it reaches conference tournament? So I, I think the overall goal is the same. We want to, we want to educate, but at the end of the day, I think you're going to have a lot harder push from folks on that tactical side to just go. Whereas I think on the collegiate side, it's a little bit more flexible and, and you're just trying to help them understand where that athlete's at now and where they could potentially be if we continue on course versus if we adjust course. Now, would you treat the data? So individual, whatever your readiness is, you're talking to the athlete and then you're talking to the coaches. Did you present Mm -hmm. that data the same way or did you cut it up? Because I do know for specifically at the school I was at, guys were very analytical and the ladies are very analytical. And sometimes the day before a game, you don't want them knowing that they're at 87%. And that can also put them in a, in a, in a worse headspace than maybe their physical space. And then to the coaches, Hey, today's a not going to be a really good high velocity day, but you can do mental stuff. You can do lots of skill stuff and, and presenting options. Or did you try to have the same unified language between athlete to coach? So that's a really good question. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I was in the collegiate setting, I was not doing as, as much of this stuff. It was more, how are you feeling? You know, how many hours of sleep did you get last night? And then to me, which this is probably not the right answer, but hey, we live and learn. It's kind of going off your history with that athlete. Hey, is this the kind of person that's going to be honest with me? Or is this the kind of person that every time they come in, you know, oh, this hurts and I don't feel good and I need to take a day off. Um, So I'm sure a lot has changed since then. But, you know, I I think it's, um, it should be now, like you said, it should be a combination. I think if you can, if you've got the data in front of you, for me, if I'm in that situation, I'm speaking to the athlete like, hey, this is where you're sitting. Um, these are some positives. Either These are some concerns. This is what's going to happen if we take this route. This is what's going to happen if we take this route. And, you know, here I'm, I'm giving you that information so that you can digest and understand it. Because ultimately we want them to become better at understanding their own body and how they feel and the effects of different stressors on their life. If I'm talking to the coach, I think I really like your approach of, um, hey, here are your options. Because no coach wants to hear, Johnny can't play today, he's sitting down for practice. He's doing nothing, yeah, he's doing nothing. It's much better in my opinion, like you were saying, to say, you know what, like he's really overwhelmed right now from a, a CNS perspective, let's go over and do you know, some breathing, some, some yoga, some movement stuff. Let's do some things that still will challenge him maybe a little bit cognitively, but won't try him the way he's, his body is reacting right now. So, you know, Hey coach, he doesn't get a day off today. He's just doing something different. And I think it, it, that goes back to the, the relationship that you have with the coach and, and that sort of thing, because, you know, there's some coaches, you even give them that and they're like, no, he's, he's practicing. Cause they don't, they don't see the value in what you're bringing and changing their course a little bit. I, I like how you brought up the value because that is one of the problems. If you use a data point that really doesn't matter, but you're going to hang your hat on it. Um, the coaches have been coaching for years and years without data. So we were very selective at what we would use and understanding that we would, you know, maybe look at like uh, peak power output and compare it from, you know, their history and their trend line. And, and especially now you, as you alluded to on the plates, 
there's a lot of strategy metrics that a lot of people aren't aware of, but you know, again, it's kind of, you get that one week, two week forecast of things are either trending in the right direction or not. But what won a lot of uh, our coaches over were when we made a call, it actually happened. You know, an ind- yeah. ind- individual just disclosed that they're, you know, not sleeping, you know, whatever. And, you know, it needs to be a technical day. Well, you know, so-and-so with a hammy or so-and-so with a whatever, it got to the point where our coaches knew we want to be aggressive too. And I think we want to accelerate their development. And I mean, short of a concussion or an illness or a COVID or whatever, usually there's something that they can do and trying to work with them instead of trying to be this governor, which, you know, I don't know, last time I checked the college environment and I'm sure the tactical, there's never just a, everything goes as plans and everything worked perfectly. They got into a fight with their girlfriend, fight with their wife, you know, whatever it is. And I think you have to be open to that, but I want to go one step further. We keep talking about some of the guys that we've worked with and and the teams, but I know coming up here, um, you're speaking at the TSAC conference and you're doing a whole presentation um, for females. Could you, could you kind of, without giving away some of the secrets or anything, could you give us a little teaser here of kind of what we're looking at and kind of what your thoughts are? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'll give you a little bit of the background. So when I was, and this doesn't ruin it because this is just how I got here. So when I was at a um, military unit, an Air Force unit, um, I had to help train kind of a, um, a support element to the main operational force. And that support element was males, females across the board. Some people that could that were former collegiate athletes, some that couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and I made the mistake of training them kind of all the same way. Like we're gonna do team group training, you know, I'm going to adjust the, you know, the weights are going to be lighter for the females versus the males, you know, what happened. And, and I just got to thinking after that, you know, just reviewing that process, like, did I approach that the right way? And um, it kind of combined in with when I was started at bridge, they did a um, it's called train the same event that we did with on it down in Austin, Texas. And so they brought in a bunch of like Ray, Rachel Balkovic and Jenny Noyles and, some other folks that are doing some really great stuff in, in athletics from the female side. And they asked me to speak. And I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to speak on. Like what, what the heck can I speak on? I was like, well, let me combine, you know, we got, we're talking about training females at the event. Let's talk about my time in the tactical space. And I started delving into kind of all things that go into training female athletes. Um, because it came from a, a gap that I saw in my approach a couple of years ago. Um, and, and so last year I spoke at the virtual conference, really just giving uh, a background on the culture surrounding opportunities for females. You know, it really wasn't until 2013 when you had the combat exclusion policy kind of rescinded and females could be in combat roles. Um, so there's been this slow, steady transition. And even though that's been lifted, you know, we're still, it's 2021 and we're not seeing a whole lot of females come through and given those opportunities. And so as we go through this larger culture change around the military, I think it's really important that strength and conditioning coaches contribute to that culture change in the appropriate way by understanding the physiological needs um, of the female soldiers so that we can be a part of the solution instead of part of the problem. You know, that female soldier that wants to go to ranger school, that wants to go to Um, SFAS that wants to do whatever, she knows that she can come to her human performance staff and they're going to give her programming and support that's going to help her to reach those goals so that if she doesn't get there, it's not because she wasn't trained properly. Um, So last year, that was kind of my focus. This year, it's kind of an extension of that where they asked us to do more kind of practical applied presentations. And so I took the research that I found and put it into context of basically three scenarios. So we've got a, um, a female that's just come into basic training that has zero lifting training history. We've got to get her through boot camp. We've got a 51 year old female senior leader that has to pass the new army combat fitness test to make rank and continue to progress in her job. And then we've got the, I think it's like a 25 year old that wants to go to, a special forces assessment. So how do we take our understanding of physiology of the menstrual cycle? Um, how do we build rapport relationships? How do we look at things from a nutritional standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, 
and put together a package that's going to support that female soldier in each one of those scenarios. Um, and so that's really what the presentation is about. And like I've said before, my hope is coming out of that, we'll get people, males and female coaches saying, hey, I never knew that. I never knew that ACL tears go up, you know, by, by a huge amount during ovulation. So, you know, we're talking about best bang for our buck. Maybe I don't do a lot of agility, lateral cutting stuff during that, during that window. doesn't say that I, you know, like we we're talking about earlier, if it's time to go, it's time to go. But I understand that during training, that's a window I need to be careful of. You know, the, um, the, the, um, oh, I think it's, I'm getting, uh, I'm going to get my terms mixed up here, but like the luteal phase, I believe there's like a, an increased, um, time or a shortened time to exhaustion and to peak heart rate. And there's issues with dehydration. So if I'm going to send somebody on a long ruck march during their luteal phase in August in, you know, South Carolina, I need to have a dietitian or someone there that's going to be helping me to support them so that they don't get dehydrated and get heat stroke or, or whatever it is. So just understanding things like that, in addition to understanding the physiological qualities that research has shown are necessary to be successful in those units, um, that's kind of the impetus behind the, the presentation and some of the things I hope to kind of talk about. That's awesome. And from, from that research, I'm sure you actually even got more questions. Um, yeah. Typically the ladies, um, if you go back in time, they, they know that it was the football plan rebranded. They know that it was the male plan rebranded. And so concerns about muscle mass angles of insertion, um, all the stuff that you just talked about. Um, certainly it's a different environment, an environment that needs to be explored. And of the people that are pushing forward, we can see that the women can actually do some pretty incredible things. I'll never forget when they had us do in one of our classes going way back to college, it was take your body, uh, half your body weight and squat it for reps. And I think the top guy got something like 50 something reps and the girls just crushed it. And I was, I was North of 70 or 80 reps or something. And then when we had the um, battle of the badges, which was a breast cancer fundraiser at Yale, same thing on the bench. Um, yeah. The woman took the overall for reps and, you know, the one who did it was, they were just in a completely different rep count. So certainly their strengths, um, weaknesses, differences, and, and other opportunities, um, in their physiology. What, what are some of the things now that kind of got your mind spinning about kind of this field and where it should go for, for this topic? Well, I mean, I think it's really, it goes back to what we were talking about being humble and going into it, understanding that there are differences. And, you know, the saying is kind of females aren't just small males. You know, and, and I think the key to it, at least from the tactical side, and I think this can can cross over into the other arenas, like what really kind of clicked in my head was there was a study by Rand um, with an Air Force Special Operations group that where they, they picked out guys from the career fields that make that up. And they asked them, what are the key physical tasks that you need to do your job? And then they broke that down into tests. And then they ran those, those physiological tests, um, you know, with males and females. And they came back with this really cool, like spider graph of, you know, these are the things that were found to be significantly important, you know, whether it's flexibility, muscular endurance, muscular power, anaerobic power, whatever it is. And there's a great spider chart that shows for each one of those different um, career fields, what's more important. So now what I can do is like, those are the answers to the test. So what I can do is kind of start from there and work backwards and say, all right, let's do some, some testing on you. Um, all right. You know, you're really bad at, um, you know, you're really bad at, at power. Like your, you know, your counter movement jump is terrible. All right. Well, I know that, you know, that's going to be important for you to be a successful green beret or whatever, because now I've got this research that shows me that. Um, so before when we were kind of flying blind, you know, both out of, let's call it ignorance to not do your homework, which was my fault initially, but also tactical was kind of new and there wasn't a whole lot out there on what are the physiological um, variables needed for success. 
Now I can meld those two and say, all right, I understand what's going on that's different from a fe- from male to female. I understand the difference in load carriage on a male to female. And I understand the qualities that are going to be necessary for them to be successful. So let's start marrying that together so that these women, when they get there, you know, they're standing shoulder to shoulder with the men and they're able to compete. What are your thoughts for someone who maybe, you know, you keep highlighting some of the research for the tactical space. What are some recommendations for say a coach listening that's working with either their high school population or their college population? What are some uh, studies or other insights for them to go get some information from? Man, you are going to put me on the spot with that one. Um, Honestly, I'll have to get back to you. It was like my approach really was I sent a message out to um, Travis Triplett um, because she had just done a presentation on female athletes at Duke University that I attended. And I was like, hey, if you have anything that you just got done looking at this, this stuff that you could send me, and she sent me like eight or 10 articles. And from there, you know, there was the, the Bill Kramer study that you talked about before. Um, this RAN, like you can look it up, it's R-A-N-D. Um, this RAN study on Air Force Special Operations and what they do. There's one that I saw that really was a, a lit review. Um, Um, I can follow up with you after this exactly on what is, but it's basically a lit review of the differences in physiological characteristics of male and female soldiers, everything down to like iron deficiencies and stress fractures and how they wear the weight of a rucksack. Because, you know, one thing that I never knew is like all that gear is traditionally fitted towards the male frame. So females aren't even getting to step into equipment that's designed for their bodies. Oh, wow. And and then we expect them to, to compete on the same level. And we wonder why there's more musculoskeletal injuries, you know, here versus there. It's, I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory once you realize that they're wearing rucks that are made for bigger, broader shoulders, you know, higher center of mass, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, those are some of the research articles. And again, I, I apologize. I can't give you the specifics right now. Maybe I can come back and, and we can. Yeah, we'll we make sure specifics. We'll touch base and we'll we'll make sure we put these uh, in the show notes for you guys, so that that way, as we go through it, um, we'll make sure that you can see access. I think that's so important. You know, as you were just explaining that, the couple of things: one, yeah, you did your homework, but two, you also reached out and being able to have uh, industry where you can actually reach out to people to the experts, like we were talking about earlier in the show. That's so critical because for whatever you felt. Oh, I don't have the answer. I got to reach out to this person. If you hadn't, I don't even know how many soldiers wouldn't have benefited from that. And so coming back to that kind of core ethos, um, it really says a lot about you and about what you've done in your, your profession and culture. Yeah. And I think one, I forget who's pointed it out to me, but a take-home point that I, I always remember now is whenever you read a research article that you really like, like go up to the author's and email them and ask them about it because they love to talk about their research. And if you have any questions or you're just like, hey, I thought this was really great. Like that's a great way to one for networking and two for just diving deeper from that four or five page article with somebody. A lot of times earlier in my career, I walked away from a research article like, all right, cool, abstract, you know, conclusion, done, got it. But there's so much more you could do with that you know, just by looking at those authors and and checking back in with them. That's a great point. Well, kind of, you know, we all wish we could go back. I'm sure there's things you would have told yourself on day one. Um, The the landscape has changed. Certainly it's different, but now now as you shift into your your role here of no longer being the new guy in the field, what would you tell um, that young coach who just got their CSCS, just finished their master's and you know, kind of any of these things is that, you know, we need to learn from our history. Um, I think oftentimes when we want to look forward, we should spend twice as long looking back because there's so much institutional knowledge within a field that's still in its infancy. What would you tell the the new coach coming up, what they should be thinking about or just kind of any pearls of wisdom? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say you've never got it figured out. It doesn't matter what you think you do not have it figured out. Um, you know, that's one thing that I always look back on as a big regret. We talked about it earlier was having that opinion when I was younger um, and not taking the opportunity to really reach out and, and discover more when I could have. Um, I think 
another thing I would go back or just advise young coaches on is um, I meant to circle back to it, but we didn't get a chance. I think coaching is very similar to what we ask of our athletes. So we all talk about not wanting to be the, you know, the soccer guy or the baseball guy, same way. Like we don't want our kids growing up being like, Hey, all my kid does is play soccer. There's a lot to be learned from bouncing around to different environments and being kind of a, a jack of all trades, master of none. Um, you can definitely like crisscross and, and use that to your advantage. Like for me, it'd be very easy for me right now to step up at a tactical event and speak on technology, but training female soldiers is something that's just very interesting to me. It was an opportunity to learn about something different. And I can always come back and talk about technology. So don't feel like you need to be pigeonholed in your career choice, in your career path, in what you choose to learn about, to educate others on. Like you can always circle back and weave in and out. So that would be one. Another thing that I would tell young coaches is don't look at it as a linear experience. Be open to jumping and crossing over into different arenas, you know, coming back and that sort of thing. Don't don't get tracked into one lane. Coach, I've got more questions than uh, answers from when we started this. And I know I'm going to be following up with you. If there's somebody out there listening and they wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you and uh, continue the conversation? Yeah, uh, so you can reach me. My um, Instagram is at RCSC. 14. Um, unfortunately, I, I just don't do Twitter. I can only handle certain social media. So Instagram is probably easy. My email, uh, Ryan at bridgeathletic.com. Um, you can try me on Facebook. It's just Ryan Carroll. Although I try to keep Facebook as a little bit more personal. Instagram is a little bit more business, but you know, I'm happy to answer questions, talk shop um, with anyone who wants to reach out. Coach, it's been a pleasure. I can't thank you enough and look forward to connecting with you over at TSAC. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.